Well, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that you braved the snow and the ice uh, to be here. And uh, those of you watching online, uh, maybe you didn't brave the snow and the ice, but you're up. So that's a, that's a win. And we're glad that you're with us online this morning. Uh, some of you, I would assume, maybe had some uh, friends and family uh, stay with you over the last few days over Thanksgiving. Anybody host someone at your house over the last few days? I see a few hands going up. Uh, what happens in your home when you have guests with you? Are there... Are there things you have to do to prepare for guests to join you and, and spend time with you? Um, Angela and I have a few things that we do. It's, it's normally not a lot of stuff, but we, we do clean the bathroom, the guest bathroom. We make sure there's new, clean sheets on the bed and clean towels for them. One of my jobs is to make sure that there's enough toilet paper in the guest bathroom. And uh, that's because I had a traumatic experience once when I was the guest at someone's house, but we don't need to get into that now. Uh, but I just make sure there's enough toilet paper. Uh, we put out certain coffee cups uh, that we want people to use, and we have different food ready for them to go. I've learned that you can't, I can't just put any kind of soap in the guest bathroom. Like I can't put a bar of Irish spring out there. That's not good enough for our guests. I have to take it up maybe to an ivory or something higher than that. Um, and then I, I also can't just put the VO5 shampoo in the shower. That's not quite at the level. We've got to get into more of that Aveda botanical repair strengthening shampoo, you know, just kind of take it up a notch when we have guests with us. There are just certain things that are set apart for our, our friends when they're visiting with us. Over the years, I've, I've found out when we have people over, there's certain blankets that we can have out on the couch for them to use. Uh, there's certain plates that we should have at meals. And, and there's actually a lighting scene in our living room, a lighting kind of technique that I'm learning about that we need to have set when we have people over. Uh, all of this is so when we have friends over, they feel like they're noticed. They feel like they're valuable and special because we care about them and we're glad that they're with us. And this idea that certain things and products and foods are set apart for special occasions, it begins to capture for us this morning the idea of something being holy, the idea of holiness. When we talk about something being holy or holy objects, it means it's something that's, that's set apart, something that's set aside. When I say the word holy, when I talk about holy, what comes to your mind? What are the images that, that pop into your mind when I talk about something being holy? Would anybody want to share maybe a word or a phrase? What comes to mind when you think of holy? Anyone? Sacred. sacred. Yeah, something that's sacred. Unique. Unique. Pure, special. Pure, special. Awesome. These are great, great answers. Yeah, when we think of holy things, we, we think of things that are unique and special and different, set aside. Uh, sometimes we think about a person who's holy, we think about them like doing the right things, that they're perfect, like they're, they're just great, you know, they do the right things at the right time, and, and really that's might be more of a righteousness, you know, like their behavior is in line with what God created them for. When we talk about holiness, we're really talking about this idea of being consecrated, being set apart for a special purpose, something that's used for a special reason, and so that means that that, uh, that guest shampoo is, is holy in that way. It's set apart for a special reason. That toothbrush that you use in the morning, you could say it's holy because you have it set apart just for brushing your teeth. You wouldn't use that toothbrush to clean the shower and then, you know, the grout in the shower in the bathroom and then go back and clean your teeth. No, it's set aside. It's set apart. It's holy in that way. The tabernacle that we read about in the Old Testament of the Bible it is holy. It is set apart. It was a space that reminded the people of God that he was present with them, that he was there that he was with them in their everyday lives. It had specific measurements and purposeful guidelines and strict boundaries uh, for behavior that all pointed to the fact that God was with the people. 
that they needed to be aware that he was with them, that he was dwelling in their midst, and they were not to take that for granted. God is holy, and they needed to be attentive to his holiness. When we shift our attention to God and the holiness of God, we get more specific about what it means to be holy. God, God is holy not because we've placed him to the side or put him in some kind of category or because he's here with a purpose. The holiness of God is different from holy objects, what we might say is an object that's holy. Objects are holy because someone set them aside. God is holy because of who he is, because how he exists in his character. God is holy not because we've called him holy, but because he is holiness. It is essential to his existence. It's part of his being. It's, a, it's captured in his character. God's holiness means that he is perfect and complete and good and right and set apart from, from you and from me. God's holiness means that he is the opposite of our sin and our brokenness. In fact, sin is sort of the opposite of holiness. When we try to claim holiness, when we think that we can somehow achieve holiness or, or grab hold of it or through our own self-instituted penance make it come to us, then we're actually sinning if we're trying to grab onto holiness that way. We are only holy because we've been called holy by God, because he set us aside. We need him to do that for us by our creator. We do not come to holiness on our own. In the Bible, we encounter story after story about the holiness of God. And often when people encountered God, they would end up on their face in front of him, on their knees because of his holiness. There's a story in, in the book of Isaiah that captures this idea of God's holiness compared to our holiness uh, really clearly. So I want to invite you to grab a Bible. If you have Bibles with you, open up your Bible app on your phone. And we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is right near the middle of the Bible after the book of Psalms. It's the first prophetic book that we run into in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. And in chapter 6, it's, it's Isaiah's calling story. It's sort of his origin story of when he began as a prophet and how that came about. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm just going to read a couple verses here, and you can follow along in your Bibles if you've got them open. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah sees the presence of God. He sees the throne room of God. And God is on his throne, and his, his, uh, he's filling the throne room with, with his, uh, his train of his robes. And there's these angelic beings, these seraphs that are crying out. They're covering their eyes. They don't want to see God. He's so holy. And they're, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Perfect, 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 complete, complete, complete. You are set apart, set apart, set apart. They say it three times because one time is not enough because it's a big deal because they're claiming what is true about God. When you want to get someone's attention, you don't just say their name one time. When, I, when Brenna would run out into the street as a little kid, I wouldn't say, Brenna, don't go in the street. I would say, Brenna, 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 get over here. I wanted her attention and that's what the angels are doing. They're bringing attention to God's presence. Isaiah sees this, and what's his response? Verse, verse 5, Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I 
I am among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah knows that he is not complete or perfect or holy. He knows he's walking around the opposite way. He is sinful, just like we are. And he's surrounded by sinful people, just like we are. And he fears that this could be the end of him. He says, I'm undone. This is it. This is the end of my life. And then one of the angels brings a hot ember from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips. My first thought is like, ouch, you know, like, did that burn? What did that feel like? But he says, this is, this is what is making you pure. He says, you have sinful lips. I'm going to purify your lips. I'm going to atone and bring your lips into line with God that you may speak the right things. His sin is atoned for, is taken into account. A couple weeks ago, we talked about atonement and the first furniture objects in the tabernacle were out in the courtyard of the tabernacle, the, the altar and the basin of water. And we talked about how God instructed the people to build these pieces of furniture. And in Isaiah's vision, he sees the altar. He sees this coal taken from the altar. And they were the two pieces of furniture that brought atonement, the two movements of atonement. First at the altar where their sin and their rebellion was paid for. A cost was required because of our sin. And at the altar, an offering was made to pay that price. And then at the basin of water, purification would take place, the reconnection of the relationship with their God. And those two movements created the atonement that they were made right with God, the holy God spreading his holiness over their lives. And here in Isaiah, as he sees what's happening, God says, I've got you covered, Isaiah. I'm gonna give you my, I'm gonna spread my holiness over you. I'm gonna make you right. God's mercy extending from the offering at the altar over Isaiah's sinful lips that they might be purified. To connect our lives with our creator, we need to be covered by his holiness as well. We can't manufacture it. We can't earn it. We can't fake it. We can't take it away from him. We can't buy it or build it. The holiness that we have is from God alone. He, he shares it with us. He gives it to us. He calls it over us. If we want to know the purpose of our life, if we want to live out the life we were created for, if we want to experience uh, grace and peace and love and hope, we have to link up our lives with our creator God. And that means seeking a transformation in our hearts and in our minds and this beautiful exchange that happens when our sin is, is atoned for, our sin is covered over. And we see an image of this at the, at the heart of the tabernacle, the very center of the tabernacle. One last time, I want to put an image, this diagram of the tabernacle up on the screen. And you can see it again and be reminded of that 15-foot that curtain wall that was over the courtyard area. The altar and the basin for washing, we just talked about those out in the court, courtyard. So as you would walk into the tabernacle, you'd encounter those two pieces of furniture. And as, you, as the priests would use them, they would be made right with God. They would be purified, atoned for. And then they could enter into the holy place where they would see the bread, uh, the table with the bread on it and the lampstand with the seven lamps and the incense. And in this place, they were reminded of God's presence, that the light of God represented by the lampstand would shine on, on his people, the bread, those 12 loaves on the table, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the, the incense being burned, reminding them of the presence of God in that place. And then they would walk through that veil, that four-inch thick veil curtain that separated the holy place from the most, the holy of holies. 
And uh, the, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. That's the last piece of furniture we want to look at this morning. This moving tent sanctuary sat in the middle of the nation of Israel and at its heart, surrounded by the 12 tribes and their different neighborhoods around it. And the people, again, they had been saved from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God was guiding them from slavery towards the land of promise. And it, it took a while for them to get there, 40 years, because God was testing them and transforming them and refining them and saying, now there's a new way to live this life. You're no longer slaves. You don't have to live that way any longer. Here's the new way I want you to live. And God was working on them and in them that they might live in such a way that they would point people to him. This is what it might have looked like if you stood on a mountain kind of overlooking the tabernacle with the, the tribes of people around them, all the, the, um, the different uh, Israelites around them, and then the smoke rising from the tabernacle. And you see it connects them to, for ancient people, the sky was where God lived, right? The, the heavens were above them, and so the smoke would connect them with God, reminding them of his presence with them. And, and this was what it would have looked like in the middle of the camp, at, at the heart of the camp was this reminder that God was dwelling with his people. The God who was holy and set apart and complete without them chose to limit himself and tabernacle with them in the wilderness. And the very, the very heart of this dwelling place, the most interior room, was called the Holy of Holies, where God would meet with their spiritual leader, with the high priest. So let's take a look at this uh, Ark of the Covenant, that piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies and how God called the people to build it and construct it. So if you flip back to Exodus 25, and we've been looking at seven chapters here in Exodus that talk about the furniture and the tabernacle and the priests. And in Exodus 25, we've got instructions on how to build this Ark of the Covenant, this last piece of furniture in the most holy place. And it's a lot like the table and the altar of incense. They're to take acacia wood and build a box and then cover it in gold. And there's to be gold rings on the side so they could put in the poles so they could carry this furniture from place to place as they move through the wilderness. And so the ark, the instructions are just the same way with the ark to, to build this box. And then in verse 16, as we look at Exodus 25, we start getting into some specifics about the ark. Once you have the box put together, Verse 16, God says, Then put in the ark the, ta the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. These are the, the Ten Commandments that God was giving to Moses as he was on Mount Sinai. As he was receiving all this information, he also received the Ten Commandments. And again, this was God saying, Here's this new way of life I want you to live. I want you to walk with me. And what does that mean? And he, he lays it out through the Ten Commandments. So those, those tablets are to be in the ark. Verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and two and a half cubits wide. Your version, uh, verse 17, your, your translation might say a mercy seat instead of atonement cover. This is an important part, uh, the, li the lid of the box that he gives him instruction. So he's going to talk some more about here's how to put that together. Verse 18, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end and the second cherub at the other end and make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover. There's a lot of information about the cover here. Verse 21, place the cover on top of the ark and put the ark of the tablets and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. And then verse 22, this is an important verse here. As he finishes up the instructions of the ark, he says, There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you, 
and give you all my commands for the Israelites. God says, this is the place where I will meet with you. Moses, you're not gonna be on Mount Sinai with me now all the time. I'm gonna have you down in the camp and there's in, in the camp will be this place where you can meet with me, where I will talk with you and I will instruct you in the way to live this life that I've called you to. For the ancient people, they were, the Israelites were surrounded by other types of people all around them that worshiped other gods, uh, small g, fake gods. So the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, other people groups, they all had their places of worship and the gods that they would worship. And often in their worship, they would have boxes like this Ark of the Covenant, a box where they would place uh, sacred things, things they thought were holy would go in those boxes. And on top of the box, they would put the idol of their God, whatever, you know, the actual God, something carved out of wood or chiseled out of stone, and that would be their God that would stand on top of this box. Or if it was real tall, like 15 feet tall, it would stand behind the box. But they would always have this box where these sacred things would be. Yahweh, the one true God, would not be captured by an idol. He didn't instruct them to create something that would represent him. He says, build this place and I will reside above the ark. I will be there. It will be almost like a throne for him. And he will sit above it, above the cherubim. And, and he says, I will meet with you in that place. In the Hebrew songbook, the book of Psalms, Psalm 99, we read about this, this holy place. The writer of Psalm 99 writes these words, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. God sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. He's referring again to the, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. God, you are holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. God is holy. He sits between those cherubim. This is almost like a throne for our holy God where he sits, the Ark of the Covenant. He's the same king that Isaiah saw in his vision with his train filling the throne room, seated among the angels, holy, holy, holy. And in Psalm 99, we're given another name for the Ark of the Covenant. In Psalm 99, it's called the footstool of God. We worship at his footstool, it says. A footstool. The nations would set their idols on top of their holy boxes, and so it was their footstool. That's where their feet would rest. They would stand on the box. And so this is also what, an image that's captured in the Ark of the Covenant. It is under God's authority. It is under his dominion. The, the laws of God, the way of him, the people that would meet with him at the Ark of the Covenant were under his authority. David talks about this when he built that permanent temple for for the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and he says, move in the footstool of God. This is why sometimes we read about enemies becoming a footstool in the Bible. It means that they're under the authority of the one who sits on the throne. They are under the authority. And, and what was God's main enemy in Scripture? And God's main enemy in Scripture is death. So death is, is under God's authority, under his footstool. The rule of God and all that would meet him there. Sometimes when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, we get it confused with uh, Noah's Ark, you know, the floating zoo from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And, uh, you know, they're both built out of wood, they're both measured in cubits, but that's where the, you know, kind of connections end. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has about as much in, in common with Noah's Ark as it does with Joan of Ark. Um, but I, I first encountered the Ark of the Covenant in 1981 when a movie came out. Indiana Jones and the, the Lost Ark. You guys remember that movie? 40 years later, Indy's still going after Lost Relics that summer was another movie. 
but that's where I first encountered the Ark of the Covenant and got interested in it. I thought, well, that's interesting. What's that all about? Uh, last week, I was at uh, the Hallmark store in Crown Center, and I came across uh, a picture frame with Indy and the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a picture of it on the screen. Uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm talking about this Sunday. I had to get a picture of it. But you get an idea of what that cover on the Ark looked like. Here's a great example of what it looked like. But here, God's not enshrined above it. It's a picture of Indiana Jones and his, I can't remember her name. Anybody remember her name? No, this is the girlfriend of Indiana Jones. That's what we got. Okay, so I, I just saw that and I thought, that's interesting. There's an, an idea of what that lid over the Ark would have looked like. Indy was looking for the Ark of the Covenant because it was lost, right? And uh, it was actually lost about 600 B.C. when the Babylonians took over the, uh, the, the land that the Jewish people lived in and destroyed the temple. Uh, the Ark disappeared. And we actually shouldn't be all that surprised that it disappeared because one of the prophets told us that it would be, uh, it would disappear and you wouldn't look, you know, it wouldn't be found anymore. It wouldn't be around anymore. Jeremiah chapter three would write about it. He says, in those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They just won't even talk about it. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another be made. Jeremiah is trying to help us understand that this ark was a temporary connection for the people of God. It was a temporary reminder of God's presence. It represented his rule and authority over those he created. It was a holy object, but only for a limited period of time. It was limited because another would come. Another king would come. A Messiah would come who would connect his people with their father God in a, in a perfect way, in a better way. There is a better high priest who was coming a better uh, example of the law of God who would come and help point us towards him, the king of kings, and he would seek to dwell in our hearts. And in the Gospel of John, he's, it says that he contained the words of God. He contained the law of God, the, the way to go. He was the word of God made flesh. And this Lord would not be separated from his people by a four-inch thick veil curtain like the Ark of the Covenant. This king would be seated on a throne, but he would not be unavailable to his people. He would not be inaccessible or hidden away the way the ark was. And if we jump to the New Testament where we read about Jesus, we encounter the book of Hebrews that we've been looking at. And, and the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to reframe the Old Testament law and the tabernacle worship and help us see how Jesus is a much better fulfillment of our connection with God, a new way available to us. There's details in the book of Hebrews about this ark that we don't find anywhere else. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. This is what we talked about last week. Consecrated means holy, so holy bread and the holy place. And notice that the writer here says that the tabernacle is like an earthly sanctuary. Again, he's trying to compare the Old Testament worship with what Jesus has come to institute. And he's saying it was earthly, it was not heavenly, it was lesser. And the way that Jesus has come to fulfill is much better, is greater. In verse 3, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So we're told there were three things in the ark. We see that in the Old Testament, but the book of Hebrews makes it very clear. There was the, the manna, 
that wilderness miracle bread that the people would encounter when they were hungry and they would come out on the desert floor would be a thin crust of bread that they could eat for that day and they kept some of it and kept it in a gold jar in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was Aaron's staff. Aaron was the first high priest. And at one point, as they were walking through the wilderness, other leaders in Israel said, hey, I want to be the high priest. They said, we can do a better job. And so God said, well, I'll tell you whose side I'm on. He says, lay out all of your walking sticks. And they laid out their walking sticks and Aaron's staff came back to life and budded, and a new branch came, and and flowers blossomed, and God said, this is my man. Aaron is the high priest. And so they put that in the Ark of the Covenant as well. And also the Ten Commandments that we've already talked about. They were all inside this Ark, as God had instructed the people to place them there. But then later in, in 1 Kings 8, when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in Solomon's temple, that permanent tabernacle structure in Jerusalem, only the Ten Commandments were left in the Ark. What happened to the manna? What happened to the staff? We're really not sure, but right before that, the Philistines had captured the Ark for like seven months, and so some scholars think they had taken those things out of, I mean, a gold vessel. They probably would have taken that out of the Ark. But whatever, that Ark ended up back in the temple in Jerusalem. Back in Hebrews 9, Verse 5, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. The atonement cover, that mercy seat, like your translation might say, the lid of the ark of the covenant with the, the golden angels on top of it. Here's a picture of what the ark may have looked like in its fullness with those, those angels covering the top. And again, God would, would dwell above them. His presence would be above them. He would speak to the high priest from above the ark. It was his footstool. This is the footstool of God. It symbolized his presence with the people. It was so holy that normal, everyday people couldn't see it. It would be in this most holy place, and when they were going to move to a new camp, they would lay that veil over the Ark of the Covenant and then take the tabernacle down around it, and then they would move the Ark to the new location and build the tabernacle around it and then put the veil back up. And so normal people didn't get to see the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, this great, powerful symbol for the Jewish people. The atonement cover, the mercy seat, was special because the people understood that God was there, that he met with the high priest in that place. And then once a year, it was also treated in a special way uh, when the high priest would come in on the day of atonement. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but let me go back to Hebrews 9 and just finish up with verse 6 and on a little bit more. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once per year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, the sins that they weren't aware of. The ones that they were aware of, they would have made offerings for, but there were sins because we're humans. There's things we do that we're not even aware of the sin, and so the high priest would offer sacrifices for that as well. The Holy Spirit was showing by all of this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of a new order, until the time when a new way would be created. The way into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was not yet opened. It was restricted and protected because, as we just read, the sacrifices were not sufficient to cover the people of their sin. It was a a stopgap along the way. It was not the perfect offering that was required so that they might be fully cleansed of their sin. They weren't able to clear their conscience 
All those who sought to know God were limited in how they could do that. And the tabernacle was a symbol of that. But there was a new way yet to come. A new order, a new kingdom, a new king. Does anybody know the name of our new king? Jesus, right? It's always the right answer, in case you're wondering. Always the right answer. The writer here talks about the high priest entering the inner room, but only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, what the Jewish people call Yom Kippur. And we read about this day in Leviticus 16. And we're not going to go through all of it, but I do want to highlight just a little bit of the story of, of Yom Kippur. After many offerings were made for the high priest and the, temp- and the tabernacle, all the cleansing that needed to take place so that the high priest could be purified and able to enter the most holy place, uh, two uh, goats were brought before the high priest. And the first goat, he would put his hands over the head of that goat, and he would place all the sins of the people on that goat, what became known as the scapegoat. And he would put all the sins of the Jewish people on the scapegoat, and then that goat would be taken outside the camp and and set free to to go away. It was a symbol of the sins of the people being taken away and, and sent away because of God's grace and goodness to them. And later Jewish writings would tell us that instead of a Jewish person taking the scapegoat out of camp, they would find a non-Jewish person. Uh, It's funny, none of the Jewish people wanted to be around all their sins, you know, so they would have a non-Jewish person come and take the scapegoat outside of camp. And then the second goat would be sacrificed and his blood would be taken by the high priest and he would walk into the Holy of Holies and there he would sprinkle some of the goat's blood on the the, um, ark, on the atonement cover. And again, later Jewish writings tell us that a rope would be tied around his ankle before he went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, just in case he offended in some way the ark or or God in that place and would be struck dead. No one else could go in to get him, so what are they going to do? So they would listen outside and and, and listen to the the high priest, and if if he stopped moving, if they thought something had happened, they would pull him out by this rope tied around his ankle. How scary would it be for the high priest to walk into the very presence of God? And again, we're reminded how the sacrifices were not sufficient because this this fear still surrounded them as they came into God's presence. But onto this, the cover of the the ark, the the, the mercy seat, he would sprinkle some of the blood of that second goat. And and the the Hebrew word translated mercy seat covers with it the idea of a covering or to cover over, to appease, to cleanse. And so not only was it a cover for the ark, it also covered over their sin. Just like Isaiah, when he was acknowledging how he was sinful and God said, uh, "Here, here is a way through. I will make atonement for you. I will cover over your sin. I will spread my holiness over you. That's what the Ark of the Covenant symbolized for the people of Israel. And there was one place and one time a year when this would take place on the Day of Atonement. One place where they could be made right with God, even in a limited way. And now today, we look back to one place and one person who who hung on that cross and gave his life for us. Jesus is our atonement. He is the Lamb of God. And his blood was sprinkled on that cross And he gave his life that we might be set aside for God's purposes. It's our sin that was forgiven. It's it's our sin that was covered over by Christ on the cross. And now we can live a different kind of life. We can experience something new with our creator. Hebrews chapter 10, we read these words. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Jesus has opened it up in in the ways that it always needed to be, in in a perfect, complete way. 
that we can come into the very presence of God and we don't need a rope tied around our ankle because Jesus completed the work for us. And, and he made it clear, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus died on that cross, that back in the temple, that curtain veil separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in half from the top to the bottom. God was not being subtle, was he? He was saying, it is open. I have done what was needed to be done, that I can be with my people and my people can be with me, my sons and daughters, those I love dearly. Jesus gave his life that we could walk into the very presence of God and as the writer of Hebrews says, let's, let's walk into God's presence. He loves us that much. You are that important to your Father God. You are loved so much that he did all that was required that you might be with him in his presence, that you might experience the life he created you for. All that you need, he has done. And the, and the New Testament says that, that now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we are that tabernacle. And it's in our hearts that we meet with God that he speaks to us and he, he gives us the way of life and gives us the instructions that we read in scripture. And he says, this is what I made you for. This is what I created you for. The New Testament says that we are built together into a holy house that we come together and create this place where God is present with us. By the grace of Jesus, we become those holy objects. And did you know that when you walk into a room, when you walk into school or work, when you come into a house or into a mall or wherever you walk, that you bring the Spirit of God with you. You bring the holiness of God with you. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. That you bring the very presence of God when you walk. What does that mean? What does that, what, how does that change about how you think about yourself? How does that change the way you think about yourself when you come into a place? And, and it's not because you're awesome and you're so great. It's because God is great and because he covers us with his holiness, because Jesus has done all that's required that we might be forgiven and that we might walk in a new way. How amazing, how good, how faithful our God is. Let's take a minute and talk to him about that. Will you pray with me? I want to invite the worship team to come up as we're praying, and let's talk to God together. Father, thank you for sharing your grace with us. Thank you for seeing us and knowing the condition of our hearts. And Jesus, thank you for doing all that is required that we might be able to walk with you and know you and experience a new kind of life. Jesus, you are the atonement for our sin all the ways that we push away from God, all the ways that we deny what we know is true, all the other things we try to place our identity in, Father, and you say, I am your, I am your creator. I love you. I'm with you. Come to me. Trust me. Place your anxiety upon me. And I will breathe new life into you because of what Jesus has done. Father God, thank you for inviting us to become that holy place where you reside in your power. Lord, we no longer need the tabernacle. We no longer need the temple. You have said that we are the reminders of your presence here on earth. So I pray that you would help us see that we are set apart, that we are called to a purpose, that we are indeed holy because you have called us holy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us think about how we treat ourselves, how we treat others, how we walk in this world, Lord, that we would understand that we have been transformed by the grace and the goodness of you because of what Jesus did when he gave his life, when his body was broken and his blood was shed. 
that we are forgiven, we are atoned for, and you, you place your spirit in us. We are truly holy because you have called us that. We thank you, Father God. Might we live it out today, this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, might you go with God, seeing him at work in your life. We'll see you next Sunday. Amen.